Hey, this is Kristen. And this is Ashley. And this is A Thousand Miles of True Crime. Hey, Kristen. What are hey. we covering today? So we are still on the CrimeCon high, or I am rather. Um, and so while we were there, we got to see Paul Holes talk about a case that he assisted in solving, and that is the Carla Walker case. And so it's actually very local to me. It's something that happened in Fort Worth, Texas in 1974. So I, I really like leaned in onto this story because it was recently solved. And, you know, one of my favorite things are advancements in DNA technology, forensics, uh, genealogy. This all kind of ties in there. Um, and I got to learn a lot more about the advancements from Paul Holes at CrimeCon. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So is there going to be a lot of science in this one? Not so much. I'm not going to go like delve into all of that, but I am going to shout out Othram, which is one of the major companies that just, I like, I hope that they get so much recognition for ties to this case. And I mean, they obviously have ties to other cases too, but it's, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal uh, what this company is doing. And that's basically their goal is to solve unsolved cold cases and help solve murders and things like that using DNA and genealogy. So that's to me is, I think, so powerful and can create a lot of change for things that have happened in the past and things that I'm sure to continue to happen, because as we know, crime is going to continue. I want to start with imagine like being excited for your kids first dance or they're getting ready to go to an event and they're getting dressed up and they're all excited. Turns out that night that you're getting your kid ready to go to this event is the last time that you're actually going to see them. That's what happened in this case. Carla Walker, her family, her mother, her father, her younger brother, Jim, and her older sister, Cindy, they're getting ready to see her off to her Valentine's Day dance with her boyfriend. And they're, you know, I'm sure excited and she's excited. The heartbreaking thing that I know that happens is that this is the last time that they're going to see Carla alive. It was February the 16th of 1974 was the day of this dance, this Valentine's Day dance at the Western Hill High School in Fort Worth, Texas. Carla, she was a junior at Western Hill High School. She was a cheerleader, super energetic person. And Rodney, her boyfriend, Rodney McCoy, he was a senior, a jock, a football player, you know, big into sports. And they were like the it couple. Like you think you're walking through high school or like when I visualize that, I think of uh, euphoria, like they're like the it couple in euphoria, <laughs> right? And I mean, that is, I guess, great and all. Um, they're in love on top of that. So it isn't just they're like high school sweethearts, like they're pretty serious. They've been dating for like a year. Um, they're both really popular and they were just, you know, looking forward to going to this dance with their friends and having a good time. Imagine homecoming or something like that, or, um, you know, prom even, you know, cause I think it was semi-formal based off the dress that 
uh, Carla was wearing to this dance. So like I said, they had been dating for a year and Rodney was like so in, in love with her that he even gave her a promise ring. He was willing to postpone going away to school to wait for her. Like that's how in love that they were basically. Carla's parents actually, uh, Doris and Layton, they were off very fond of Rodney as well. They're like, you know, he clearly loves our daughter. We feel that she's safe in his hands. And so we're excited for them to go to this dance. Like they, they pretty much welcomed him into their family over the course of this year of them dating and everything. They really trusted him and felt that he loved their daughter. So Carla. No red flag. There's nothing, nothing in his past. Nothing that really stands out. Like, seriously, he was a normal 18 year old, you know, I mean, I'm sure like he had maybe some bad habits, smoking pot or drinking or whatever, but they, they still, I mean, it's the seventies too. Like they still thought that he was a good person, you know, and, and this is all the way through, like they've, they're in Rodney's corner. So this dance, like I said, is at their high school, Rodney and Carla, they get to the dance. They're with their friends are having a good time at the dance. And then after the dance, they decided to go to like uh, the Taco Bell in the area because that was like the hangout spot or the place where, you know, kids go. Like when I was younger, it was the White Castle. Like, I don't know why the White Castle at Four Corners was the, the hangout spot, but that was the spot where all the kids went to go hang out. And so that's what they did. They did that and they hung out there for a little while and they were with another couple and they were drinking and smoking like things, typical things teenagers are doing after a dance. Um, is, that, is it wrong that I didn't know that Taco Bell was that old? Like, I don't know why I didn't <laughs> envision them in the seventies. Oh, that's a good point. I, I, you know what, I'm going to look that up because I'm not a Taco Bell fan by the way, but, um, that is an interesting question of how old is Taco Bell actually? That would have been so funny if you're like, well, actually, Ashley, they opened in 1963. <laughs> so they they were drinking and smoking some weed. No other drugs apparently were consumed. And for whatever reason, Carla started feeling sick. Maybe she had drank too much or she was getting the spins. She was telling her friend, you know, she felt like she was going to throw up. So they leave the Taco Bell and they go to the Ridgely Brunswick bowling alley. And this is so Carla can use the bathroom. And I guess all of them, you know, did their thing in the bathroom. And then Rodney, Carla's boyfriend, drops the other couple off. And then they come back to the bowling alley. They're in Why the Why do car. they keep going to this bowling alley? I, I mean, I guess they're, they didn't want to go home. So it's like, let's just chill. Okay. Let's hang out. We, I don't have to be at home yet. So like, we're going to chill and do what teenagers do. So they're back at the bowling alley and they're in the parking lot doing what teenagers do, making out in the car. In I was like, don't go into too many details. This is a family show. <laughs> sure. Right. So they're making out in the car and I guess in, in the car, Carla's like using her purse as like a, like a pillow for her head as her and Rodney are making out or whatever. And for whatever reason, the door seemed to like open and like they fall out of the car. And as they're falling out of the car that they see a man like above them and is 
this man begins to hit Rodney over the head with some object. We know what it is. It's um, it's a pistol. And so he's like bludgeoning Rodney over the head, like over and over and over again. He even points the gun at Rodney in the face and is going to shoot him. Like he pulls the trigger a few times and nothing happens. So what appeared to, I guess, have happened is the clip from the gun came out as he was hitting him. Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't know. But the clip ended up being on the ground. So... Carla's like, what is happening? Like, you know, like she's begging this person who she doesn't apparently recognize to stop, like stop. Is he saying anything or he's, he just, just starts hitting them. He's telling Carla to come with him. Okay. So that to me, like how, how Rodney's account of the door opening, it's almost like, well, did the door open because her purse opened it or did this man open the door like was he targeting them and at this bowling uh bowling alley parking lot like did he open the door because he saw these two kids making out in the car and he just saw it as an opportunity um or did it open because of her purse like that to me seemed unclear Rodney is like bleeding like wait can we go back to that because I'm trying to think of like I've been in older cars like that and they're hard to kind of open so they're heavy they're heavy it's not just like oh my purse slipped like I think he opened the door right it it usually would take somebody to really I just don't think it would just be her purse I agree that's why I threw that in there but on the interview with Rodney after all this had transpired and everything he made it seem as though like they were in the car leaning up against the door as they were getting hot and heavy. So maybe he assumed that that was how the door opened. I I agree with you though. I think that the attacker opened the door. Like he saw it as an opportunity and he was like, Oh, I struck gold tonight. I'm going to go ahead and take this young gal from this car and bludgeon her boyfriend, you know? So. But that's um, not what he thinks. He thinks that the purse opened it. And that the guy just was like, saw them and was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go take her. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. I was just trying to understand <laughs> that. I love questions. So ask away. <laughs> so Carla's practically begging the attacker, like, please stop hitting my boyfriend. You know, like, I will go with you. I will go with you. So she's complying and she just tells Rodney, go get my dad, go get my dad. And before she could say another word, the attacker hits Rodney over the head again with the gun and he's knocked unconscious. He it's comes- interesting though. I was going to say, it seems like he didn't, like he could have killed him, right? I guess maybe she wouldn't have gone as easily, but that's interesting I, that he would leave I him mean, alive, I guess. I don't know. They're 17 and 18. So they're terrified. They're terrified. I'm sure. I don't you care know, if you're 48, you're terrified. And then to add in, that they were drinking and smoking. So they're a little bit impaired, maybe. I don't know like how much Wait they a second. consumed. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. They're in a bowling alley parking lot, right? I totally forgot about that. In my head, they're like on some secluded road. No, they're just doing their thing in the parking lot. The balls of the attacker, right? Like think about, yeah. I'm sure there's other people around. Now granted, it is late, but it's, I don't know. 
I don't know what day of the week this, the day was, but yes, you're not in some secluded area. You're in a parking lot where there's other cars. You don't know who else is in the car making out, you know, who knows if someone else saw something, but to me, when Carlos like telling Rodney before he gets knocked out unconscious and she's like telling him to go get her dad, go get her dad. That like broke my heart because she is thinking in her mind, like, I'm going to get saved. My dad's going to save me. My dad's going to fix this. He's going to come find me. And that unfortunately did not happen. So Rodney comes to, and he wakes up and realizes Carla is gone and he's freaking out. What would you do? Would you, what would you do in a situation like that? Where's the first thing place that you're going to go when you come to from after being knocked unconscious? I'd run in the bowling alley, right? Like that would be my first instinct. What would you do once you went in the bowling alley? Like, well, I would instantly ask for help. Instantly ask them to call the cops. I don't know. Is 911 available at this time? (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Do I just like not know the 70s at all? Am I being really ignorant? I don't know the 70s. I'm like, Taco Bell. (laughs) 911. Wow, they had everything. No. (laughs) I'm Um, no expert on the 70s either. I'm right there with you. Yeah, I feel bad. Uh, but yeah, so, but something I would go in and try to get help some way. Well, Rodney, he decided to go to Carla's home and tell her dad, like she had told him to do, but I get what you're saying. Like you're going to go to the nearest place where you can find help. And that would have, my assumption would have been the bowling alley. Cause it's right there. But again, it's like 1230 at night or 1230 in the morning. So, oh, so maybe the bowling alley is not even open anymore. That's a good question. I don't know if, I don't know what the hours were of this bowling alley in 1974, but that could also be another clear indication as to why maybe he didn't go into the bowling alley or why this was a targeted area for this attacker, because maybe there really wasn't anybody else around. So what's okay. What is Fort Worth like? This part of Fort Worth back in 1974 was probably considered like rural or country, not very much around, like not super developed. I would think because like where I'm at in Fort Worth, it's now starting to develop and like there's stuff everywhere. But in 1974, I can't see that there was very much out in this area. So Rodney goes to Carla's house. He's freaked out. He's scared. He's panicking. He's beating on her parents' door. Also, the bowling alley is not that far from Carla's home. So it's one in the morning. He's beating on the door, screaming. And Carla's parents, they open the door and they see that he's got blood. It's, you know, kind of dried even. It's not like wet or whatever. And he's got a scar on his face. They're like what is going on? And he's like, they got her. They got her. They got Carla. And they're like, who, you know, like, what are you talking about? I can't imagine like this. This is like stuff nightmares are made of getting like having your girl, your daughter's boyfriend come to your door one in the morning, blood on him, a scar on his face. And your daughter is not with him. Scary shit. And you so think she's just at a dance, having a good time. This is horrible. exactly. And she's with this, her boyfriend who you guys adore. And it's like, where's, where's our daughter? Carla's I'm assuming, parents. I'm assuming the crime rate's not too high in 
Fort Worth, Texas in the seventies. Am I wrong? You are wrong. Um, there were actually a lot of murders going on around this time. Uh, there was a serial killer. I mean, there were like, there were like a string of women that were murdered in February and they called them like, you know, the, the February murders or something like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how heavily publicized it was, but things were happening here. It wasn't like women weren't being attacked, kidnapped, abducted, and then later found murdered. It was a thing. Carla's parents, they call the police, they go to the bowling alley because they want to go back to the scene of where their daughter was last at. And they're like, they find Carla's purse and they also find the clip from this gun. It's a, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's a, a Ruger's pistol. At this point, it's, it's all about the evidence. Like, you know, obviously there's a search that starts. They're looking for Carla. Um, other jurisdictions are coming in to help or whatever. Like this, this is a, a, a girl that they're like, we have to find her. Like everyone's trying to do their part and, and pitch in and help to try and find her. At this point, all they have is the evidence, which is Carla's purse and the clip. And then Rodney's recollection of what happened. And Rodney seemed like an open book, like from the start, he, his story never changed. You know, he always proclaimed his innocence that like he had nothing to do with this. He loved Carla and he was just visibly distraught um, that this happened and that he could not like get her out of this situation. So I know that that had to have been taxing on him and whatever, like you, you know, you being the last person to see this abducted individual or missing person, you know, I'm sure he went through some problems, probably some vigorous interrogation. Give me every single detail. And honestly, just thinking about it, if I was, I I would be concerned. It seems like that's a long time to, because how long did he pass out for? Probably just minutes. Oh, they think it was just minutes. Okay. Now there is a gap as far as when he claims or when, when he stated this happened and when he arrived at Carla's family's house. So, cause they say the, the distance between, it should have been less than a five minute drive, but it just like there, there's a gap there. There's still a gap. And they also, as they were investigating, they, they did track it to see, oh, he would have had time to drive to Carla's home or drive and do something with Carla's body and then go to her home. But we, we know what really happened. Like, I know what really happened. You probably don't know what really happened. I don't know what really happened. (laughs) So the search for Carla is on, it's strong. And after three days, they find her body in a culvert near Benbrook Lake. It's kind of like a ditch, but like when I looked at a picture of it, it looks like, like a small little tunnel. Oh, that, okay. I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> you know, I had to look up, I have to look up some of these words. I was like, what is a culvert? I don't know what that is. You said it, it like we all knew it. I was like, oh yeah, culvert. Yeah, I was hoping you knew what it was. The police, you know, they have to relay this crushing news to Carla's family and to Rodney, like who's I'm sure just completely distraught um, and heartbroken because this is like his, his love, you know, up to this point, he's 18. This is his, the love that he knows and she's gone. And then he couldn't save her. Carla had been drugged with morphine, which apparently was something that was 
rare or not like a thing that was easily that many people had access to at that time. And then um, she was strangled. That was basically her cause of death, raped like several times, they said, and and beaten pretty badly. Like she had like bruises all over her. Um, And there was also some like, I guess, speculation on when she had actually been murdered, because this is now three days later that they found her body. Um, but it's February. And if I, re- if I recall in February in Texas, it's, it is cold. It's cold, like how it is there in Chicago. So like the preservation of her body, she had not like really decomposed. So they were like, oh, she's, they, she was just murdered like hours ago or like, you know, not that long ago, not three days ago. But her actual date of death is listed as the February the 19th. Because of the beating that Rodney took and him not really recognizing who the attacker was or who the abductor was, because he was basically just beat over the head and in the face, really, like I said, all that all that they had was this clip and Carla's purse and now her body and whatever evidence was on her clothing that she had on. Horrifying that this woman young girl, 17, was taken on this day. Fort Worth never forgot what happened to Carla. After she was found, they wanted answers. They wanted to know who was responsible for this murder. And like I like have mentioned so many times before, Rodney McCoy, even though he proclaimed his innocence from the start, they wanted more from him. Like he went through interviews year over year as they're trying to solve this case. Um, They even hypnotized him to see maybe he could remember something or maybe he did something and he would remember what he did and come out with it uh, while under hypnosis. Sadly, Rodney was actually basically a suspect up until they found the real killer. And I mean, that's... Even I was suspicious of it. Yeah, no, I feel bad. I was like, something's not adding up here. They say it's always, you know, the husband or the boyfriend. And, you know, he was the last person with her. And just, you know, I I get it. It's it's a police investigation. and, And that's all that they had to go on. I don't know if they botched it. I don't know, you know, how well they preserved evidence that they had. Um, but all they have is this this 18 year old kid who was last seen with her. And all they have is his account of what happened. They have no other, no one else can back what he's saying or anything. So all that, and I I will just throw it out there. Rodney did not do it. He's innocent. From the start, he proclaimed his innocence, but some anonymous jerk that maybe knew something about what happened, or maybe it was the killer himself, um, sent an anonymous letter to the police saying that Rodney did this. It was not signed like with a name or anything. It was signed with like number, I'm sorry, zeros and ones. Like, I don't know if it's like some type of code or whatever, but um, as this case went cold, because it did, they couldn't really get any, anything on anything. And so it went cold, then it was reopened, went cold again, reopened for years, years, okay? So this happened in 1974, and this was not solved until 2020. The the person 
convicted was not found until then. Wait, and did the letter have anything else in there that would make them think that this person actually knew something? Because you mentioned no. that it could be the the murder did it. So they broadcasted it. They put the the letter that they had received, the police did out to kind of, I guess, stir up chatter about the case and get people talking, which it actually did work. Um, You know, they did interview some of the other high school students that were at the bowling alley or at the Taco Bell or at the dance. They were trying to figure out where the morphine came from because it was it was just not an accessible thing. But that led them nowhere like that got them nowhere and i'm sorry i keep jumping around today uh you mentioned she wasn't feeling so well was that is there a chance she got the morphine before any of this or so that was also (laughs) that was also um brought up like maybe she was you know recreation using the drug recreationally but they did check with the person that they identified would have had possession of morphine. And he was like a high school drug dealer or whatever. And it was in like a pill form and no, like it wasn't something that she voluntarily took. It seemed Rodney, he took polygraphs. He was hypnotized. He went through rigorous interviews doing whatever law enforcement asked him to do whenever they asked him to do it. He ended up obviously moving on with his life. He moved to Alaska, got married, had kids, got a divorce, and then ended up coming back to Texas. And this is still just heavy on him because he really, like he, you know, just really professed his love for Carla and felt like he had really let her father down because of what happened to her. Wait, and what did he, do you know what he moved to Alaska for? Was this just literally to get away from this case? It, well, it probably had something to do with it, but like he went to guy, I think work on like some type of like oil rig or okay. something in Alaska. So for work, but also I would assume like to escape just, I don't know, like that's still got to be something so heavy on someone, you know, even, you know, even if he knew he did everything in his power, like to try and fight the guy off or whatever, it's still got to be a heavy load that he was carrying. So the Fort Worth police, they, they, they had other leads too. It wasn't just Rodney that they were looking at, but these other leads, they led nowhere. So like I was telling you, when you asked, like, were there other things happening? Like were other killers out killing people in Fort Worth? And there were. So um, there was a notorious serial killer that investigators thought could have possibly had something to do with it. His name was Tommy Ray Neeland. Um, and this guy, like he killed three people. He was brought in like in a lineup uh, to see if Rodney could pick him out of a lineup. And so they had him say like, come with me or whatever. And Rodney actually picked him out of the lineup. But Tommy, like being this notorious serial killer, he's like, no, if I did something, I'm going to admit to it or whatever. He didn't admit to it. He said he was not responsible for that murder. There was Hold some... On. So, but he picked him up out of the lineup. That's like a little suspicious, right? Like, it is. Like, I mean, I'm not saying, I, I'm just saying it sounds like somebody probably pointed him in the right direction, right? I don't know. I mean, I think that it's hard. Like, 
things change. And, and then too, he was hit over the head with a gun. How much can you really remember when you're, I mean, I can barely remember what I did last week. Granted, I, I'm like, wasn't beat over the head with anything, but like, I don't know, but he did, he did pick him out of the lineup. And Tommy was like, no, it wasn't me. Sorry. Okay. I just think it's suspicious that he picked like the exact guy the cops wanted him to pick. I wouldn't be surprised if the Fort Worth police really wanted to just pin this on someone, but Tommy was not having it. (laughs) He was like, (laughs) I killed these three people, but I did not kill her. Then some jerk, another jerk, Jimmy Dean Sasser, he comes and confesses and says that he killed Carla. Like he just, he's like, I did it, but he did it. And the police knew it. There, There were details about the case that he just was not familiar with. Uh, that they had not released to the public. So they knew right away, like this dude didn't do it. I don't know what type of idiot will want to like place himself in something like that. Like that's a, a totally different level of attention <laughs> that I could see someone needing, but, um, but he it's kind of, of, it's kind of, I mean, we literally saw it in the last case too, in the Tara Grinstead case, like these weirdos come out of the woodwork. But why, like, why would you, one, you're muddling up an investigation like, you know, this, this poor girl's family, they just want to know who did it. And like, here you are just like, uh, I did it, but you have no, like no association with the crime whatsoever. Why these potential suspects didn't do it. Rodney didn't do it. So who did it? Carla's brother, Jim, this was her younger brother. This is like years after the murder. He's so determined to figure out what happened to his sister that he decides he's going to become a police officer. Like he's going to get as close to figuring out and pushing to solve this as he can. And that's, that's what he did. Like he was talking to anyone that had like high rankings, cold case investigators. Can you look at this case? Can you tell me, give me any other, I need a fresh set of eyes to look at this anything to push the investigation further along so that it could get solved. Um, so in 2019, that's exactly what happened. Now, remember I said the, the evidence that they have is the clip, the, uh, the clip from the gun, um, and then Carla's dress and body or whatever, whatever DNA they were able to pull off there. But remember, it's 1974, and it just, DNA technology just wasn't where it's at today, like nowhere near it was actually evidence found on Carla's bra, okay? And that is the DNA that was used to identify a sample or like build a profile of who did this. The gun, I do want to say, they were able to track down what the owner of the clip and the gun it belonged to, okay? That person's name was Glenn McCurley. They brought Glenn in. He was interviewed back in 1974 when this happened. And he said, someone stole that gun like six weeks ago, six weeks before this happened. They, they asked him, did he know anything about Carla Walker's murder? And Glenn was like, I have no idea. Like, <laughs> no, no uh, recollection whatsoever. I don't know who that is. Um, the gun was stolen. I had no parts of this. Did he live in the area? He did. He lived not far from the bowling alley as well. And he was just really 
calm, cool, and collected. Like almost like I hate to say it, but believable. Well, did they believe him, or was he a real suspect? That was it. After that, he had no alibi. His wife was basically out of town when this happened. I guess he had a kid that went to school that was going to Carla's school. So. Oh, so he may have even known her or seen her around kind of thing. I don't believe that he knew her personally, but this guy is 78 now. So his memory and all that, like this, this takes a, a really ugly turn. Like I said, calm, cool, collected. Well, after those 46 years, they determined after being able to establish a profile from the DNA that they found on Carla's bra, that it matched to the last name McClurry. So they tried to first do it with DNA and they got no matches. They were able to build a profile or whatever, but they got no matches in the database that they had. So then Othram came in and I'll tell you more about Othram, but they came in and they were able to build a profile and they said, well, we're going to do a genealogical and see if we can do it, get a match there. And that's how they were able to get a match to that last name. So they're like, okay, when Othram lets the police investigators know, like McClurry is the name, the investigators are like, that name is familiar. Like we remember that. Yeah. And so they're like kind of digging down the, the, the family tree or whatever of the McClurys. And they're like, oh, well, the dad died before this happened. Did he have any kids? And he did. And so Glenn had brothers, but they weren't living in Texas at this time. So it was, Glenn was the guy. And then also Glenn was the person that they interviewed in 1974 that had ties to the clip. He owned the gun that that clip belonged to. I want to now speak to how they came to the point of solving this because 46 years is a really long time. Paul Holes, we got to see at CrimeCon. And if you don't know who Paul Holes is, he is like a master detective. He's retired now and he's only doing cold cases um, and like TV media type stuff. But he was also one of the people involved with catching the Golden State Killer and solving that basically. Um, he worked with Othram and what Othram is, they're a company that specializes in forensic genealogy and they resolve unsolved murders, uh, unsolved disappearances, and they assist with identifying unidentified murder victims. That is basically their, what their company does. Um, and they're based in Texas too. Paul Holes partnering with Othram is really what brought justice to Carla's family and solving this horrific thing that Glenn McCurley did to Carla in 1974. I do want to mention some points about Glenn back in 1974, that he had an alibi, his wife was out of town, he reported the pistol being stolen. And so the police, when they interviewed Glenn about the pistol, they asked him, well, why didn't you report the weapon stolen? And he said, because he was an ex-con. So this guy has a record. Now they have their evidence. The police know Glenn's our guy. They had already, like I said, built their, their profile or whatever, but the way that they got his actual DNA from him 
is by going through his trash and getting his DNA off of a McDonald's straw. Like I find that to be just like advancements of this stuff there. It's getting better and better. And these criminals, they're not going to be able to get away with this shit much longer. Seriously. Like it is, it's crazy what they're able to do with DNA now. And it's even just a very tiny, 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 small amount. So now I'm going to get to further into the interview with, um, Glenn. So they bring Glenn in. They're trying to play it cool with the guy because he's older. I think he's maybe like aware of what's going on, but he's he's in his 70s, you know. As they're interviewing him, you know, they're letting him know about the clip and the gun and bringing up Carla and does he remember what happened? And as they're interviewing him, his wife is there with him. And they're asking him questions about like, where were you the night of the murder? Um, and he's like, oh, I was with my wife. And she was like, no, I was out of town. Like she busted him out. And so, so like, I'm sure he's probably giving her the side. eye, like, what are you doing? But she has no clue probably that he's done this horrible thing. Um, she's like, you know, no, I remember where I was at the, the day that this murder happened and I wasn't with you. So it ended up coming out that Glenn ended up confessing. Oh, fast right there. Ended up confessing in the interview. It took some time, but I mean, his confession, he had, he put his own twist on it. Like, oh, I saw Carla in the car and she was kind of like trying to get Rodney off of her. So like I came to her back and call and rescued her and took her so that Rodney couldn't hurt her but I killed her. What are you talking about, Glenn? You're not making any sense. Um, like, and then I really saw Rodney's point and decided to do the thing. Why? How did he think that was going to work? I don't like, know. But at, I mean, at this point, it's like, okay, you've confessed. You know, he got emotional and he said that he strangled her and uh, that he had sex with her. Like it was voluntary and like, no. And did I'm he sorry. say all this with his wife in the room? No, his, at this point, his wife was not in the room when I, when he confessed. Um, but like, even if that did happen, which I'm not saying that, that it did, but he, he killed her. Like, come on. Um, I just, I'm like, where's the explanation behind that? So on September 21st of 2020, that's when they arrested Glenn for the murder of Carla Walker and Glenn ended up changing his plea to not guilty. Why? What is he saying? His confession was coerced. I guess conscious is a real thing. And once they were in court and the families were there and everything, and the judge asked Glenn, you know, how did he plea? He changed it to guilty. I mean, he got to live his whole damn life. It is sad that Glenn got to spend 47 years doing whatever he wanted And then too, think about this. If he did this 47 years ago, is it possible that he did this to someone else? That's a good point. Because if you could do something like this and get away with it and then be in your seventies and still somewhat denying it, like, you know, he wasn't going to like be on his deathbed and be like, I killed Carla Walker. And he was a truck driver. And that's like nothing against truck drivers, but this guy, like he was all over, like all over. He just uh, it gives him easy access to be 
picking people up and dumping them basically and and moving around yeah and moving around so I just want to add the, I, I just, hold on I'm just thinking like that kind of adds up then like this is the only time maybe I mean his wife probably didn't go out of town all the time right like he is usually the one out of town and then finally she's out of town and he just can't resist and that's how, why he ends up finally taking out some girl in his hometown he's a creep he's a creep yeah, just... either way either way and obviously he killed her so he did and he admitted to it so I hope that like I just want to shout out Othram so hard because I hope people know what this company does. I hope that they are connected with I hope Othram is connected with other outlets in the forensics and DNA world so that like more cases are going to be solved. I know that their goal, their company goal is to solve 10,000 cases like in the next three years like that is their ultimate goal. And I'm really also happy that Carla's family, detectives, old and new, cold case, um, everyone that had like a very close ties to this case, I'm glad that they got the justice that they deserved in regards to the killer was caught. They can be at peace and rest and knowing that this guy is not going to hurt anybody else. Um, but there are three, probably more, similar cases that could potentially be solved that Glenn was questioned about because as they were interviewing, interrogating him or whatever, um, and were asking for details about where Carla's body was placed and things like that, he was giving other locations. Yeah. Other locations uh, where they had found other bodies I'm assuming is that what you're saying or no he's just not necessarily but it made the police think and ask they did ask well is this somewhere else that you placed a body you know like they're questioning because if he's saying oh it was here but it wasn't there but did you put someone else there so there are three similar cases that happened around the same time as Carla Walker's murder and an abduction but Glenn denies involvement altogether like how these women were murdered that they were raped and where they were placed where their bodies were placed all three were very similar the other huge like oh my gosh is that belongings of these three women were found in close proximity to glenn's house really yeah wait and were they all in the same area too is that what you said? Oh, okay. So he's all in the wow. Fort Worth area and all around the same time. So remember how I was talking about the February murders, I think it was called, or the Valentine's murders or whatever. I'm hoping that, you know, Othram did went so hard for Carla Walker. And I know this is not like something cheap. Like this is a super expensive thing that was done for them to, I guess, build a profile and, and take this DNA and, and try and get data from it. But I'm hoping that Becky Martin, she was abducted uh, in on February the 7th of 1973, and she was found two months later. Um, Christy Towers was abducted February the 4th of 1983, and she was found two months later. Angela Urart was abducted December the 11th of 1984. And her body wasn't found for nine years. So all three of these women could have some ties to Glenn, whether or not he'll come out about it. 
I mean, dude, you're already in jail. If you've done something, just tell someone you did it, you know, or, or maybe there's even more. Like I, I was digging into these three cases here and I'm like, and there were others. There were others that were very similar. 47 years after Carla's death, her killer, Glenn McCurley, is finally behind bars. I really, I really was excited to like, I guess, learn something about what Paul Holes was working on because I think he's just a phenomenal human being to, to be doing this and especially doing this kind of in his spare time because he's retired now. But this was, this was a heartbreaking, a heartbreaking one to cover. So what did you think? Definitely sad, but thank you so much for covering it. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about this case. And uh, I mean, I learned a lot about Othram and, and all that right now. So thank you so much. Cool. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Continue to support, um, like, subscribe, share, send us all the love. And thank you again for listening. Yeah. Thanks guys. Thanks guys.